Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. In case you hadn't noticed, social media plays a significant role in our day-to-day lives. And before I forget, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter uh, and on LinkedIn, maybe on Facebook, and uh, please subscribe to the podcast. But I digress. It's taken up more and more of our lives, and it's also taken up more and more interest in the courts. In 2021, Justice Thomas issued a concurring opinion uh, in, in the case of Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, where he raised questions about the status of social media companies as possibly common carriers uh, and the relationship with that to the First Amendment. Recently, we're recording this in in late September of 2022, and uh, recently we've seen some significant decisions coming out of the federal courts of appeals. Uh, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit just a few days ago issued a decision in Net Choice versus Paxton, holding that social media companies' uh, claim of of, of First Amendment rights in their content moderation decisions uh, did not stop Texas from regulating, to some extent, those social media companies. Now, the 11th Circuit, in another case also titled Net Choice, came to a different conclusion uh, months earlier, and now uh, the state of Florida has petitioned the Supreme Court for review of that issue. So the Supreme Court may hear the full merits of these basic questions of the First Amendment rights of social media companies and, and their possible status as common carriers. Now, that's something that's also attracted the attention of scholars and policy wonks. The Gray Center has been involved in this quite a lot over the years. If you look through our working papers online, you'll see a number of papers that we've supported and workshopped and presented on issues related to content moderation. Maybe one of the most impactful papers that we uh, we helped to incubate here at the Gray Center was by Michigan State's Professor Adam Candube. He wrote a paper in 1999. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. Sorry, guy. Not quite 19, not that old. It was uh, 2019. Uh, he wrote a paper called simply Common Carriage Verse and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I think Justice Thomas cited it in passing in his opinion. And after he wrote that, after he wrote that paper, uh, the Trump administration hired him to go to the Commerce Department and help lead its policies in the last couple of years on social media regulation. And in fact, Adam circled back to those issues earlier this year and a Gray Center policy brief reflecting on some of that regulatory work. Uh, but I digress. Today's conversation is with two longtime friends of mine and of the Gray Center. Uh, separate from the work at the Gray Center, they were recently involved in a program at the American Enterprise Institute, where uh, I'm a senior fellow, uh, an ongoing series of conversations and papers and recently a conference on questions related to the internet platforms. And their papers at AEI were so much in the wheelhouse of what we do here at the Gray Center that I asked if they'd come over for this podcast, too, to talk a little bit about their papers, maybe debate or uh, argue a little bit to keep it interesting. Uh, And Jason and I have some questions, too. Uh, So with all of that said, let me introduce our guests. Uh, We're joined first by Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU. Uh, He's also a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he still teaches also at the University of Chicago. And his paper in this AEI series was titled, Should Platforms Be Treated as Common Carriers? It depends. Uh, You can find this paper at platforms.aei.org. 
And our second <laughs> guest, our second guest is John Samples. John is the vice president of the Cato Institute, but perhaps of more direct relevance to today's conversation, he's also a member of the oversight board that Facebook or Meta created to act as a kind of court of appeals uh, in some of its own content moderation decisions, a a semi-independent or maybe a fully independent Supreme Court of sorts for Facebook. John's paper in the AEI series is titled Social Media and the Appearance of Corruption, and and it too is is available at platforms.aei.org. We'll link both of the papers in the show notes. Richard, John, Welcome to Gray Matters. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Let's start with uh, Richard. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about your paper, Richard, and then we'll move on to John's. Richard, again, the paper is titled, uh, Social, um, Should Platforms Be Treated as Common Carriers? It Depends. Okay, it, it depends on what? And while well, you're that's at an it, what's yeah. a common carrier? Well, let me start going back. Uh, I have been working on the common carrier problem in one form or another for 25 or so years. And for the most part, the early history had to do with rate regulation and with respect to access. And the definition of what counts as a common carrier within that context started out as those people who have usually some degree of monopoly power over a very important essential area of life in which the kind of activities that are supplied are basically standardized with respect to the class of consumers for which they're going. And so the early examples would be you would have a coach that would take you from Oxford to London and it would only be the coach there. There'd only be one in at Edding to, that you could go to at Reading. And so at that point, the rule was you could not simply exclude people from the railroad on the one hand from the hotel on the other, but had to do the following. You had to set up a set of rates. They could not be extortionate. They had to be fair and reasonable. And they had to be applied equally with respect to all the individuals in the system. And the second constraint was given the rates that you had, they had to be sufficient to cover the investment that the party made in this particular common carrier facility with options for a reasonable profit. And so the early common carrier cases were rate cases subject to a confiscation kind of restriction of one form or another. They grew enormously in scope and influence when we started to have railroads on the one hand and public utilities like pipeline countries and electricity on the other. And common carriers as a category may account 15, 20 percent, perhaps even more of a general economy subject to this form of regulation. The difficulties you get when you come to the modern situation is that rates are not the question that people are most worried about. What they're worried about is the question as to whether or not these common carriers have sufficient monopoly status uh, so that they have to be subject to a First Amendment guarantee, which has to do with the question of whether or not viewpoint discrimination is undertaken by them, uh, which ought to be and is generally treated as the sort of the, the ultimate bad with respect to what's going on. The threshold question is, are they or are aren't they? And the reason why this turns out to be extremely difficult is it depends to some extent on what the market share is. It also depends to some extent on the level of coordination, if any, that they have across carriers. The more coordination there is, the more monopoly it looks, the more common carrier-like it looks. And then there's the further question, which seems to have been resolved, or at least more information has come up recently, as to whether or not the government has taken an active role in trying to coordinate with these things, either by 
by way of coercion or cooperation in what's going on. Uh, there are a number of reports, and I'm a professor of law, not a fact, so I, I can't confirm them, which have suggested that the Biden administration in particular has been in pretty close cooperation with some uh, of these carriers, maybe not all of them. And to the extent that there is that cooperation, uh, then the defense that was raised in some of these cases, uh, that these are simply private entities doing their own thing and therefore not to be subject to any common carrier regulation, is going to be necessarily weakened and so forth. And so I'm just going to say one other thing about this is that when we started this discussion, I've had many a debate, and, and the usual argument on the side of non-regulation is that entry can easily dissipate the kinds of monopoly profits that otherwise exist, uh, so that what you're really working in is a world in which potential cooperation is something that can constrain other individuals. If you look at this empirically, it's not so clear that this has happened, uh, because the durability of these monopolies, at least in the short run uh, seems to be fairly great and the competition has yet to enter even though it may do. So what I did was to propose this kind of a solution which says given the current state of affairs in which it turns out there are no ready competitors um, a situation of some common carrier obligation seems appropriate but if in fact the structure of the market should take place and a company say like Parler starts to introduce itself and to gain a foothold uh, then you relax the common carrier stuff because you observe actual competition. And so it's very hard to figure out how you run these transitions, but at least in the short term, uh, there has been, in fact, no particular difficulty. That is, no, no, no particular difficulty in the sense that the market share has not eroded as this sort of free entry class would start to do. And what are the obligations? I'll just make two points about this. Uh, one of them is it, it seems to me that uh, when you're talking about common carriers, there are two rules that you could adopt. One of them is a non-discrimination rule, which says uh, you can't look at the political character of the speech. You have to take it all. And misinformation is not a viable category for these purposes, but you can stop as salacious activities, outright defamation, uh, fraudulent statement, racial hatred, and so forth. But you could not stop somebody from saying, I don't think the government is right with respect to the potency of the COVID vaccine. And the other form of regulation that has been posed is a detailed examination, a disclosure set of requirements as how these common carriers work on the model of the SEC. Um, I think the fact that it's a model on the SEC is a strong argument against this rather than using it, because I regard their sort of uh, basically preliminary exhaustive disclosure requirements is just a substitute for direct regulation or worse. And so I would reject that stuff. But I think that on the other side, I think the non-discrimination obligation is clear enough. And I think it could probably be administered uh, judicially that I would be inclined to favor it, at least in the short run. Uh, this is the reason why things depend, of course, is they depend upon the shape of the market. They depend upon the level of innovation. They depend upon the level of abuse that you start to see or perceive in these kinds of injuries. And one of the things that I leave it, I'm going to ask John is he's more confident than I that it turns out that there is no political spin associated with the way in which the key platforms operate. It may be more true with Facebook than it is with Twitter or the other way around. My own view is if you look at the people who were suspended, it turns out they tend to be my friends, uh, which of course <laughs> is a form of discrimination in some sense. And so I think uh, the real question empirically that remains is how selective is the process of removal? How politically tied is it? Uh, the greater the egregious behavior, uh, the more likely you want some intervention. But again, uh, to finish with my famous words, it depends. <laughs>
It depends. Now, John, uh, you wrote a paper of your own, and we're going to discuss it. What would you rather do? Should we start with your paper, or do you have any sort of initial reactions to Richard? I I was planning to just respond briefly and then move on to my sort of general take about these things. Okay. Go go ahead, and then Jason, I'll have some questions after all that. So it's... uh, Indeed, an honor to be uh, debating, discussing with Richard Epstein these issues. Uh, I think it's very interesting because, as Richard in his paper identifies as a libertarian of the consequentialist sort, uh, he may be surprised to find that I, too, would identify myself as a libertarian of a consequentialist sort. And I think we both are there probably because we've seen uh, what the deontology types, the part people that don't take consequences into Uh, consideration end up making out of libertarianism. Um, So I would say that the issues here are a couple that just in responding quickly to what Richard said. The first one goes to the question of competition, and he mentions my aside from 2019 in that regard. Uh, And we've had an almost, uh, well, three years since then. Uh, And have there been any changes in that regard? with regard to Facebook, at least. Uh, And also one could say with Twitter. I would say with Facebook, the issue is that in the last uh, nine months or so, that uh, the, at least, the uh, leadership itself has been, of Facebook has been, and to some extent of Meta in general, has been actually running scared because of a rapid and a rapidly growing competitive threat from TikTok. Uh, And the the nature of that threat was unobserved, at least to me, in 2019, in the sense that uh, whereas Facebook and others are still in a social media model where one relies on one's connecting people to one's friends, uh, TikTok has, in fact, produced a different kind of algorithm that apparently is quite popular and is rapidly gaining uh, uh, market share against Facebook and uh, to this point, Facebook seem the efforts. Uh, if you are a Facebook user of Reels and sorts, seem unavailing to that. So that's part one. I would say the second thing is sort of longitudinally uh, uh, change, longitudinal changes, which is since 2019, we've sort of seen a recognition. I would characterize it as so, at least within Facebook, that Facebook itself is has run its cycle, that it, it will be henceforth. Uh, something used by people like Richard and me and not the kids and the kids are where the money is. And, uh, and what the kids are going to want is those goggles and a metaverse. And so the, the uh, head of uh, Facebook and of Meta has himself uh, clearly uh, gone toward the future. And actually the greatest threat to uh, something like Facebook is going to be uh, from the metaverses of the world, which itself may be much more pluralistic than we think. Let me say uh, my own views about this and how they've changed somewhat. In 2019, I wrote what would be a standard libertarian account, uh, and to which I hold to by and large now, which is, uh, is that there is no First Amendment right of users against a private company like Facebook that that company indeed does have certain First Amendment rights against the government. And indeed, when you think about it, that um, the argument about political bias is the idea that 
Facebook is taking political positions in their content moderation, which strongly suggests that indeed they are uh, a First Amendment right is at stake. So as we know from uh, prior jurisprudence, once you've reached that point, unless you completely uh, sort of dismiss it as the Fifth uh, Circuit did, once you reach the point when there's a First Amendment right at stake, it's very hard for legislation uh, to overcome that. However, during the from 2019 to publishing this paper, it also became aware of much a number of things happened. Uh, the 2020 election happened. Uh, all of the events during that period happened, including takedowns, including uh, the Hunter Biden affair, and also. Uh, of course, the events of January 6th and afterwards, including uh, um, essentially takedowns by a number of different companies in apparent coordination. So what struck me about this, coming as I do from a campaign finance regulation background, was that what was really at stake here was not uh, political bias in a systematic sense, which we could not determine anyway, but rather uh, the belief that no one uh, on the right, and indeed no one that did or does now, believe that the employees at Facebook, among other things, also the region of the country is, is an issue here, but no one believed that they would carry out a content moderation in an old traditional liberal way. That is, people who had progressive notions on many things Let's uh, th think about Nadine Strawson here. Nonetheless, strongly upheld a very strong version of First Amendment rights. And so whatever happened, even though people at Facebook were, say, 94% of them uh, donated to Democratic Party candidates or causes, nonetheless, they would, uh, in the past, one could assume, would support First Amendment rights. Now, that is not widely believed. But there's also reasons not to believe it, in the sense that it does seem to be that there's a generational change afoot in uh, these people, and that they the support, particularly uh, for free speech, has huge holes in it regarding hate speech and also, one could say, misinformation. Uh, and as well as exactly the issues that are most clearly at stake. So that's why I got to the campaign finance. There's a, a standard that allows constraint of First Amendment rights, of private rights, and it's called the appearance of corruption. That is, that private entities can do things that destroy confidence in elections or policy debates, con uh, confidence in democracy itself, as it were, and that, that it creates a limited right to constrain uh, First Amendment rights. In the past, that was a right to contribute to campaigns. It seems plausibly so that it could, uh, could also be applied to something like content moderation, even though it's a First Amendment right. What I don't believe, though, as I go into my paper, is that the current options that are being discussed fit that very well and would pass a, uh, a constitutional test, a court test. Um, I will say, finally, to close up, Richard's point is an interesting one about government interactions with Facebook. We have, particularly in the early days of 2020 regarding the pandemic, we are only beginning to get uh, very specific information about 
the CDC and to a lesser extent uh, World Health Organization and its relationship with uh, Facebook staff. I know nothing about others, I should say. Um, to this date, the, the information I have looked at does not suggest a coercive relationship between uh, this government and um, <clears throat> the additional policies pursued by fa uh, Facebook, which were to take from January 30th, 2020, stuff starts coming down regarding the pandemic. Um, and certainly beyond that, and in areas that don't involve vaccines and don't involve palpably low quality speech, uh, things about, uh, speak of Richard's uh, connection to Menlo Park, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration involves one of the faculty of Stanford, along with a faculty member of Harvard University. Uh, why is that taken down? Why are is there interventions? Why were there interventions about the origins of the virus? If the, the I do believe the Facebook uh, standard was and is a kind of incitement standard. If speech would directly cause physical harm, was the terminology. Um, then it could be taken down. And you can see how that might work with vaccines and third parties. But these other kinds of things uh, are other kinds of takedowns that seem to me open to question and need to be looked at closely, which I hope to do as uh, I'm wearing my Facebook cap. I mean, I would love to hear Richard's thoughts on both uh, John's view of the analogy to uh, campaign finance law and also his view of the Facebook Supreme Court overall. But John, something you said just a moment ago uh, struck me, the, the point about the relationship between some of the social media uh, companies. John, as you point out, some people point to, suggest to evidence suggesting that the government is coercing these platforms into making decisions. Or cooperating. That's it. That's the other thing is, is others look at this and say it's cooperation. I would love to hear from both of you which way this cuts if they, because some say, well, they're cooperating with government, that means that the decisions of Facebook and Twitter is itself state action. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're the agents of the state. Um, if they're being coerced, it raises an entirely different um, question. Or maybe the situation is nebulous and the truth is somewhere in between. Any so thoughts on that? Let me put a bigger context here. One of the things that is a... I, you know, as an insider of sorts, uh, that I think has profoundly affected the course of content moderation at Facebook is this desire not to be, quote, an arbiter of truth, unquote. So the result, in other words, they, they greatly desire not to decide what is right, what is true. But what they do end up being is the arbiter of the arbiters of truth. So you end up with a bunch of fact checkers making those decisions. Uh, and they end up, uh, and in the case of uh, COVID-19, um, again, early January, it's just beginning, they decided that the sources of all authority would be twofold, the World Health Organization and uh, the Center for Disease Control. And what went out from that was uh, they would uh, act on their facts, as it were. Uh, I don't... Um, so that's the, the 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 general situation here. I think the evidence I've read is that you see in those transcripts of emails, what you see is um, an open door for the government agencies, and that the companies were uh, seeking out information 
from them. On the other hand, if you read the story this week uh, from uh, New York Times about the German hate speech laws, what you see is a very different picture in which the companies are actually offering resistance to a rather more stringent kind of uh, speech regulation that one might well expect from the German government. So uh, I, I, what I would like to hear Richard say is, Richard, you, you, if there is no coercion, there's cooperation, do we nonetheless have, we might have an ethical blot, but do we have a uh, legal blot on Facebook? Well, I would answer that question as clearly we do. I mean, if it turns out that they cooperate to some extent, I don't know whether you want to call it an independent contractor relationship or an agency relationship or so forth. But to the extent that you have government in there on one side of this particular issue, I, I think that it says it looks like more state action. I also think that it, um, and here I have very strong opinion, there is no worse substantive decision that could ever be made than to trust either WHO or the CD to be the arbiter of truth of any of these substantive issues. And what you've done, in effect, is you've basically said, we're going to take what government agency says is the truth, when the entire function of a First Amendment is those are the guys who ought to be in the crosshairs of everybody else and to be subject to some kind of attack. I've done more reading on this stuff than I care to mention with respect to it, and I regard the work of the S of the CDC as beyond reprehensible. I think they're totally incompetent in terms of the way in which they have handled things. To some extent, they've confessed it, but particularly on the vaccines, to give a clean bell of health when there's study after study which raise question is just wrong. And now the question is, do you have to believe the other guys to say that, aha, uh -huh, uh, the CDC is wrong? No, I think in the question like this where there's a lot of indeterminacy, uh, what you really want to do is to have speech and counter speech on this and let the truth come out one way or another. And so when you start having all the government agencies working in one particular direction, I think it's difficult. And it's not only, by the way, that it works with respect to the information that comes through the various social platforms. It looks like an industrial complex that's taking place. And I think, in effect, that the first thing that Facebook should do and Twitter should do is completely reverse that position and saying, we hereby welcome any anybody who wants to disagree with these government authorities. They've got too much influence as it is, and we need to have a little bit more competition with respect to speech. So um, I can't tell you how disappointed I am uh, in the way in which this thing has played out. I think the Biden administration has been terrible on the way in which it's done, and I don't think that either Facebook or Twitter should side with them in a misinformation kind of an argument. I regard that phrase as an extremely dangerous phrase right. and as an opening wedge to totality thought. Absolutely correct. Misinformation along with hate speech are the terms bandied around by social media that are most open to abuse and most uh, uh, and most dangerous, I think. Um, but notice also that there's this irony with Facebook, right? The whole uh, not wanting to be an arbiter of truth goes back to the uh, free speech era, that is 2015, 2016 or so, and was much discussed by Facebook. And, the, you know, this the idea, we don't want to be in there making these truthful decisions. We don't want to be arbiters of truth. Now, one way to go out of that is our tr usual First Amendment way, our free speech American way, which is, you know, an government's not an arbiter of truth. People talk, they make decisions, people can handle those yeah. views. Uh, but that position and that general cultural position was incompatible with the idea that you you wanted uh, a kind of factual basis for uh, 
moderation of content on the platform. And so you ended up being arbiters of of truth. And the thing I would say about that is um, the other alternative at the time in January 2020 and afterwards would have been to have some kind of competition of authorities, right? Uh, Let people come forward. And our idea is that uh, with do free speech, that uh, the best arguments will win out. Now, I would say one of the things about the pandemic, one of the unknown victims of the pandemic, is that I was at a thing at uh, the Atlantic Festival the other day, good, solid, liberal citizens, and a a woman there who worked on disinformation, remember our concern, an area of concern here, was asked, do you think more speech is the right answer for bad speech? Is that what you've learned from your work uh, in disinformation? And she got a sad, long-range look in her eye, and she said, no, not at all. So one of the things that Facebook does is uh, as an option to uh, censorship or suppression of speech is uh, to label speech. In other words, it's a more speech alternative. Now, it may well be the case that uh, we have turned a corner here or what will come out of this that needs to be fought with uh, against by any means necessary is that more speech is actually not the right way to respond to falsehoods, that what the uh, suppression or some sort of central authority makes the decisions about what's true and what's not. But I'm quite happy to debate this woman to figure out who's engaged in disinformation. I mean, look, I think the fact the worst thing you can do if you believe in free speech is to delegate this decision to two government agencies, one international and one private, and sort of treat them as though they're the kind of the neutral arbiters. I mean, I've read the work that's come out of the CBAC. It's utterly shoddy. It's totally incompetent most of the time it's dismissive i have yet to see a single study that they have cited outside of their own work to defend their particular position they never engage people on the other side in what it is that they do uh who has had all sorts of very complicated connections with the chinese government and so forth i couldn't think of a worse party uh to which to delegate this authority so i say open it up i mean you know i've certainly made my share of mistakes with respect to the ways in which these done and you know been condemned in the new york i might want to say because i was so irritated about it i go i give a very detailed account at that particular publication as to why the evolutionary theories makes it extremely difficult to figure out how you work with vaccines and with everything else they get two purported experts who say that i'm wrong there's no such change every single statement that those guys made was wrong i mean because one of the real problems that you have is you do not know who counts as an expert in this and i'm going to say this with quite degree of passion the persons whom I trust least to talk about the public health implications and the remedial implications of various diseases are doctors. Uh, They have almost no systematic knowledge of fashionable choice theory, public health, or anything of the sort, and they make the most incredible kinds of blunders. And what we've had is we've had two kinds of delegations, both of which I find deplorable. One is delegations to government agencies to control this, and the other is the assumption that if you've got an MD behind your name, you actually know what you're doing on these kinds of stuff. I spent an enormous amount of time, you know, doing, I'm teaching it right now, all the stuff on the FDA and how these kinds of decisions are made. And it turns out, you take somebody like Anthony Fauci, he doesn't know the first thing about the various rules of proof. Uh, When they're prepared to say, for example, that only double-blind clinical trials are admissible in evidence, uh, 
that's against every principle of evidence I've ever seen in my life. Um, every time you do it, if something is more probative than it is prejudicial, you let it in, and then you have to weigh it against other forms, and you can't let people who are basically tied to a particular mode of proof, which was very dominant in the 1950s and 60s, control the dialogue today on all this stuff. So I think, in effect, what we've done is we've turned this over to exactly the wrong people, and that is why it is not a coincidence. This thing continues to drag out as long as it does because the public health responses that they have made have been ruinous with respect to education, particularly with respect to children, old age care, everything else. This has been the worst handled thing by the government stuff. The Trump people did not do most of it. Why do I say that? Because they were out of power 10 months into this uh, and they made a bunch of blunders then, but it's been continued for a longer time. And it's people who are in the permanent bureaucracy, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks and so forth, all of whom I think are utterly unqualified to deal with the issues. And it's only because we have this sort of, well, they've got the right silo, they've got the right title, uh, that we give them the deference, the deference that they most certainly do not deserve. So now, Richard and I have a podcast of our own together called Reasonable Disagreements, and we've gone around and around on some of these issues a few times. And I think I'm going to, I, I want to pan back slightly to um, the word delegation. Richard Richard knows that's a trigger word. Uh, for yes, but uh, for everybody. It is one of the things I found interesting in keeping an eye on, on some of the, the internet platform debates the last few years, the ways in which the practical power of internet platforms, and I, here I don't just mean like social media, um, think of things like the Apple Store, um, where the, the practical power of some tech companies at, at significant points of uh, of leverage in the economy, it's given them something kind of like the, the power of an administrative agency. I think delegation is, is the right word here in that policymakers, either in Congress and the executive branch or in the states, there's, I think, a great temptation to rely on some of these companies, whether it's by cooperation or by coercion, but to rely on them to do the things that not necessarily, not just the things that government can't do, but even the things that government can't do as quickly. And I think a lot of the debates around the platforms in recent years, it feels to me like a fast forward reenactment of a lot of the debates through the 20th century over the relationship between actual administrative agencies uh, and, um, and the legislature. All also between private industry and the legislature. And on this point, I promise I'll, I'll let the guests actually talk again in a moment, but <laughs> oh, um, that's okay. I think that in some ways, the, the book that's most illustrative of the current moment, it's not any of the books about Facebook or about Google. And I tried to read all those. And if you ever see me zoom from my home, my home office, they're all stacked up behind me. Um, the book that I think is most relevant to our time, it came out Oh, 70 years ago at this point. It's by Ellis Hawley, and it was called The New Deal and the Problem of Monopoly. And Hawley traces through how, the uh, no relation to Josh Hawley, um, as far as I know, that would be ironic in this context. <laughs> it certainly um, would. <laughs> but, but Professor Hawley traced the Roosevelt administration's um, approaches to monopoly. And there were three. There was antitrust, of course. There was re regulation. And there was cooperation. And you saw a Holly, I think, called it a study of economic ambivalence. Um, I don't think that's quite right. I think the better way to look at it is is strategic ambiguity, I think, or experimentation. 
I think in some ways the Roosevelt administration was trying to wrap its head around how best to deal with monopoly. But I also think they realized that if you could operate at different intervals on different paths, you might get something uh, better than any single one path. And that strikes me as a, a lot like the debates that but we're having But they managed today. to choose the wrong path on every one yeah. of the three paths. Well, that's, this, another, we, that's another podcast. Yeah, but, I mean, but, the, the single most dominant feature of the period was that industry welfare had the following implications. If you were talking about monopolists, they were single big guys and those people you had to defend. If you were talking about cartels, you were talking about farmers and you were talking about work men and so forth, and those you had to defend. And so what the uh, Roosevelt administration did is it went into high dungeon and making sure that every short-term cartel that they could support, they did support. And the theory was you got a political coalition of insiders, large numbers of people, lots of farmers, lots of workers and so forth, and they never worried about the negative externalities. I also want to say one other point. I think what you had to add in there was the so-called claims of expertise as part of the administration for making the particular forms of adjudication. And expertise has the following dual situation. If you're an expert, you're really good at forming cartels that never ought to be formed, right? Just as if you're an expert, you're really good at breaking up cartels that ought never to be formed. And until you know the way in which the particular expertise is being used, you cannot resolve this. In the healthcare issue, it's a different problem. The forms of ostensible expertise that are identified in the government are usually people, I think, who do not have the requisite set of skills for dealing with this stuff. So I thought uh, Adam was, the book Adam mentioned was going to be my old friend Bill Niskanen's book on representative government. And I have to say, I've had a uh, since my time at Facebook, I sort of went in admittedly with a prior relief there, but I've had more than one occasion to sit, think, this must be what it's like to sit at the top of health and human services and try to figure out what the hell is going down somewhere else. <laughs> and in the case of Facebook, of course, somewhere else in the rest of the world uh, is often the case. So I think that uh, is, and I think it's a problem actually for quite apart from the oversight board, is a problem for running the institution <laughs> itself, uh, the way it's functions and so on. Uh, but however, consider that for the uh, the implications of that for the uh, Fifth Circuit's decision and what any kind of legislation we might get out of that down the line. Uh, do we really believe already within a week of um, uh, the appearance of the Fifth Circuit decision and the continuation of the Texas law, uh, there has been learned commentary explaining exactly how the uh, social media companies can avoid the Texas law without having to directly confront it or anything like that. They can simply avoid it. And then you have to believe that either, and no one is going to believe this, that a part of Congress, a committee of Congress, is going to provide the requisite oversight to make this kind of law work, A, or B, that somewhere in the FTC, there's going to be that kind of oversight. Richard's not agreeing with me, but this is uh, Richard's problem that he will now explain to us. <laughs> no, no, look, I think you're absolutely right. The question of this elusive expertise, where you find it and how you correct it, is the central problem. But let me mention something about the Biden suit um, with respect to the sort of comprehensive ban of the use of masks in workplaces and the vaccine. Wait, they which, were relying which, which lawsuit? Which uh, this is the, the one that was decided in January of this year. Oh, okay. The OSHA vaccine mandate the OSHA vaccine, and any other okay. case. Yeah. All the data that they were relying on was at least six months old and probably older. 
So I would like to return to the question of libertarian consequentialism in this re- in this regard. That's you. And were you surprised that I I I, I take, putting at risk my job at the Cato Institute? No doubt. I'm well, joking. Cato is a bit too they're, they're a bit too holy on some of these issues. The necessary <laughs> truths as opposed to conditional ones. Yeah. Let me go back to that. So the, <clears throat> under the First Amendment, uh, well. Many of, let's go to this. One of the many claims that you see when you read these emails is that uh, the information you're getting from the CDC wasn't, uh, or the, to a lesser extent, the WHO, wasn't these kinds of arguments about more uh, complicated kinds of things. They were getting information, at least in these uh, disclosed emails so far, about claims like, well, people are saying that... Uh, if you take the and posting on Facebook and elsewhere that if you take the vaccine, you will become magnetized. And these include photos of people with knives attached to them and so on. And there was, of course, also a, a, a real interesting uh, a kind of argument about Bill Gates, his motivations, his desire to depopulate the uh, world and his uh, and not least that the vaccine itself contended contains certain kinds of transmitters or certain that was going to be used to track people i suppose now so those are kinds of speech now those kinds of speech in the public forums of the united states are protected from government regulation by the first amendment i think everyone believes that's likely true one of your colleagues at stanford wrote as much Uh, however this seems to be the kind of thing that uh, the Facebook staff that I've read about so far, and I emphasize so far, the kind of information they were getting from the CDC, because they were, they were seeking out that information to take it down because they believed in January and later, and probably down to this moment for all I know, that uh, such information leads to what they call, again, direct physical harm. That is, it would lead people uh, wholly without reason to get to avoid vaccinations. And in doing so, they would also harm themselves, but also third parties would be harmed because the insofar as it would be spread uh, and wouldn't otherwise be spread if they had been vaccinated. That was their theory. Now, my question that goes to the question of libertarian consequentialism is, does our version of that, Richard, does that justify Facebook, not the government, but Facebook, in fact, uh, intermediating there and preventing such low-quality speech from being widespread for really tens of millions of people, some of whom might not take a critical approach to it, and might have the consequences, therefore, of, uh, for at least some vulnerable people, of uh, direct physical harm. What do you think? Well, I think what happens is that in some of these cases, I'm with you. I think in general, counter speech would be better, better by private parties than by government. But also every piece of adverse evidence indicating the dangers that are associated with vaccines is never put on Facebook and never accentuated. So just I'm going to make one more observation and and then um, turn the floor over to Jace. But, you know, as I've thought about this through the work the Gray Center has done and some of my own work, and now most recently the work of the, the AEI project on digital platforms in American life, um, sometimes I wonder if the problem isn't so much um, that platforms are making content moderation decisions. In fact, I'm glad they do. I I understand that the word misinformation or disinformation is overused now. Um, and it's often sort of used almost as a cudgel. But the fact is that 
there are things like truth and falsity. We ought to be modest in our ability to sort of declare what they are, but we ought to pursue them. Um, and I think we ought to take, I think platforms need to take that seriously. They could each do it differently, but I think it's important both for their own value to their customers in some respects, but also in their social value. I think it's important for platforms and users of platforms to take truth and information and falsity and disinformation seriously. Now, what worries me the most about the present situation is that we often see the platforms move in the same direction at the same time very, very quickly. Um, and I would like in the marketplace of ideas to see a little bit more competition than that. So I get worried about that. When, you know, years ago, Cass Sunstein wrote about availability cascades. I worry today about unavailability cascades. <laughs> okay. And uh, I made Richard laugh, so mission accomplished. But wow. I worry that that's the risk. And in some ways, maybe the best metaphor for the kind of regulatory device I'd like to see, if these platforms were regulated, it's almost like the circuit breakers on the stock market. Um, I would like if there was a way to sort of slow down content moderations across platforms so that when one moves, others have to wait just a little bit, whether it's a day or two, and then sort of go, that could have interesting incentive effects in both directions. It could spur platforms to make the initial decision sooner rather than get caught behind. Um, or once a wave starts, it could cause them to slow down. But I think that the more that we can get the platforms competing amongst themselves um, would be a good thing. And now I'm making that statement ex cathedra because I'm now going to um, turn the floor over to Jace. Jace LinkedIn is our research director. And Jace, uh, you've been listening to this conversation and you're familiar with the papers, both Richard and John's papers, and also the earlier Gray Center papers that I alluded to. Jace, why don't you ask a couple of questions before we go? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Uh, in the time we have left, I did want to turn back to what both of you had in mind for addressing this problem. Um, and in the to the extent that you identified the problem with the expertise in the public health establishment, um, who do you think would be competent to administer some of these proposed changes, either applying common carrier standards or any other content moderation regulations, be that either within the social media companies themselves or within some agency or court? I think it's extremely difficult to find anybody with whom I have confidence today on this stuff. I mean, I think what I have always been involved with is trying to figure out what the applicable normative standards should be in the hope that some administrator would come forth and adopt what's going on. Uh, what I see in the fact here is that the serious problem is, is that I think the kind of mental frame that you need to do this is multidisciplinary down to its core. There is obviously a medical component. There's an evolutionary component. There's a public health component. There's a rational choice component to all of this stuff. Um, and an epidemiological component. There's no person who has it all. What you need to do is to have somebody who's a little bit more Catholic in their taste. And I think the key feature about this is the one set of people I would exclude from this as doing it are inveterate government. And so I have a requirement. You want to get people outside the government on normative stuff, and then you want to have skilled information 
depends on the policies of people who do understand how to run um, large situations. But I'm very pessimistic about this in the current situation because I see when I talk to people and so forth, uh, the common reaction that I hear is, well, if the CDC recommends this and the FDA says that, well, I ought to do it. And so, you know, the number of people who will take Paxlovid, one clinical test, and think that it's okay, notwithstanding the open ends about it, is very large. The number of people who are willing to think about ivermectin or HCQ is much stronger. My guess is that the risk profiles run in the opposite direction. I could be wrong about this, but over and over again, I think that the government insiders, uh, there's an alliance between them, the pharmaceutical companies, and so forth. They are not the people we want to do this. Free, open, and uninhibited debate was a fake phrase of Justice Brennan. I don't agree with him on how he decided that libel case, but I certainly believe with him on how it is you think that the general truth ought to operate. So uh, the conditions that Richard has set out actually are met in a very general way by the uh, companies, including uh, Facebook. <laughs> uh, that is to say, they have have out non-governmental agencies called fact-checking organizations to which they reserve to which they refer these kinds of questions about what what is a fact and uh, those now generally speaking i think one of the issues this is going to be one of the issues in looking back throughout the pandemic uh, period what about uh, uh, fact-checking what about fact-checking in general is it something we want to continue to have uh, and it's also something that is not consistent with, they are in a sense a substitute for freedom of speech, for free debate, right? They decide what the facts are. Now, that's one thing if you're deciding the fa whether it's a fact or not, that vaccines make you magnetize. It's another thing, if it, as they recently decided at Facebook, uh, about the meaning of a recession and whether we were in fact in a recession and uh, came down on the side of the Biden administration. Those sorts of things clearly should be avoided. However, there, I think once uh, you go down the, the line where you're going to be removing some material and you want some legitimacy for it, something's going to be there. Now, the fact-checking that Facebook has is uh, has got a number of different things you could say about it, but it's notable that there's a, it seems to be an outgrowth of the older journalistic establishment that for so many years... Uh, we learn to trust, which is, of course, I'm being somewhat sarcastic there. It is uh, sort of a relationship between expertise, genuine expertise, perhaps, and uh, journalists. And the journalists are tasked with the problem of finding the truth and then applying it as fact checkers. The problem here that I have indeed raised with uh, some Facebook employees is uh, journalism and the media are among the least trusted organizations in the United States. Science, on the other hand, despite the many things that Richard has said uh, in this podcast, remains among the most trusted uh, kinds of uh, institutions in America. I think uh, there, there perhaps needs to be some rethinking there. In any case, in doing a look back on the, um, uh, the work done during the pandemic, certainly fact-checking will be something that the control board will be looking at closely. I wanted to ask a more specific question uh, about this content moderation game. Much of the debate centers on the Communications Decency Act and Section 230. Specifically, and Richard mentioned this in his paper, uh, there's a requirement that if you're going to remove objectionable content, mm -hmm. it has to be done so in good faith. What does that mean? And I'll ask John first. What 
what kind of standard does the requirement to act in good faith impose on these companies? And, well, and I want to know, speaking of delegations, is that phrase itself uh, an unconstitutional delegation uh, if it were in federal law? Well, this is uh, for the lawyers among us, uh, and of course, above all, Richard. Uh, I presume it means something like that it's undertaken in with the a, a belief that uh, the removal is, say, if it's... Uh, uh, false a falsehood or misinformation that in fact they do believe it is so and are just not using this term of uh, open to abuse misinformation uh, as a that it actually fits the rules and uh, since they could have the rules and if they act in good faith then they can remove the material. Look, I, I have no question that a good faith defense is very standard for situations like this, uh, because otherwise what happens is if you're tasked with removing thousands upon thousands of things, every mistake you make is going to cost you, but every good decision you make is going to give you no particular benefit. And it's a constant question of administrative law when you have people who are forced to decide between two kinds of error. You can't make them responsible for one and leave them wholly unresponsible with respect to the other. So I agree with this. The, the problem that I have with respect to this is, to some extent, you. What I want to do, you take people, and is it if you know they're using an algorithm, as as, as John says. Um, less worried about the bias unless somebody could show me there's something systematically wrong but there's particularly on the COVID situation there's people people who are designated by names as persona non grata including people who have very eminent types of reputations and so forth inside the profession and so as far as i'm concerned when you start to ban something like this an internal deliberation which doesn't yield some kind of a public report i think is very vulnerable so you know they don't like robert malone and you know they're all sorts of hit stories about him. He really didn't invent mRNA vaccine. It was just something else. On the other hand, the guy's got a thousand publications out there. Makes a lot of prediction. I don't want to see somebody simply announce to us, we did a study and this guy's in, is misinformation. I want them to publish what it is that they think is wrong with what he says. And I don't think they're going to have it as easy a job as this because the moment they have to publish something, he's going to be able to respond. And his knowledge base is a lot greater than theirs. So you think of the way this thing works. You get people who used to be preeminent scholars in a particular field. They come out on the wrong side of the issues. They're now reduced to pariah and they're not allowed to defend themselves against these sort of decisions. These are, this is like having a judicial system in which a court acting in good faith is allowed to issue an anonymous opinion um, without any attribution as to who made it or any statement as to what's going on. And so that's why I think that the Facebook system is insufficient to deal with these kind of situations. And in fact, if you recall in the paper that I wrote, I said just the fact that you put somebody on the list as being a disinformation person is a form of per se defamation. John, you get the last word. Well, one thing I would keep in mind about uh, dangerous individuals, uh, quite apart from the whole issue of the pandemic, is that about something under half of them were taken directly from uh, the U.S. government, Department of State, because many of them are, we would recognize as terrorists. Now, I don't know if people who are designated terrorists by the U.S. Department of State have the uh, power to or the right to, to sue. I'm not worried the about States the terrorists. State. I'm worried about the scientists. 
Well, certainly I think Richard's point is one about confrontation, competition of ideas is a good one, and also one in which people have to, uh, ultimately, there has to be levels of accountability. The other problem, though, is that this is an organization that does 100 million posts a day. Yes. The, uh, again, the papers we've discussed are, they're at AEI, uh, where I'm a senior fellow, uh, the, the, in a program called the AEI Project on Digital Platforms in American Life. Uh, you can get both of these papers at platforms.aei.org, John Samples on Social Media and the Appearance of Corruption, Richard Epstein on whether common carrier uh, platforms should be treated as common carriers. Uh, there's other papers in that series that would be of interest. In fact, to John's last point on um, just the sheer volume of posts at Facebook, uh, one of the more recent papers in the series at AEI is by Alex Fierst. He used to be yeah. uh, at Medium.com uh, and at Neuralink, um, one of Elon Musk's companies. He's now at Murmuration Labs. And his paper is focused on uh, AI and content moderation. Um, but over here at the Gray Center, we've been very busy on these issues for a few years. I mentioned uh, at the outset Adam Candube's paper on common carriers in Section 230. That was a Gray Center working paper in 2019, and it was later published in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology in 2020 under the title Bargaining for Free Speech, Common Carriage, Network Neutrality in Section 230. If you look in the Gray Center's working papers uh, in our archives, you'll see other papers on the subject of Section 230 and content moderation, uh, one by uh, Enrique Armijo, on uh, algorithmic content moderation in the First Amendment, one by uh, Matthew Feeney on allegations of bias and Section 230. So there's a lot there and surely a lot more to come uh, at AEI here at the Gray Center uh, and, uh, and, and in many, many other places. But in the meantime, uh, I want to thank John and Richard for joining us on the show. And I want to thank you as always for, for tuning in. Uh, please follow us on all these platforms. And please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.